It's not easy being a public company. A major software company goes private while airlines battle for acquisitions. Plus, Morgan Housel looks back at the dot-com bubble. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. I'm Deidre Woolard sitting in for Chris Hill, and I'm joined by Motley Fool Senior Analyst Jason Moser. Hey, Jason. Great to be with you today. Hey, Deidre. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you because you've seen cycles in the overall market, and wow, we are in this kind of like let's make a deal environment right now. There's so <laughs> many acquisitions, there are rumored acquisitions. It's just all spinning now. Some of it's kind of small, like eBay buying uh, an NFT platform called Known Origin. But then uh, last week you had that larger deal, like Zendesk going private for 10.2 billion. We've got the Frontier battle. We've got rumors coming out, like PepsiCo and Celsius Fitness drinks and FTX and Robinhood. Well, let's start with uh, Zendex for a minute. So, we had a flood of IPOs and SPACs in, in last year or two. That flood turned to a trickle, and some companies are now going private. What does this Zendesk deal signal to you? Well, I, it signals a couple of things. I think, you know, on one hand, it, it does feel like clearly the market's appetite for those those high flyers has been tempered a bit, right? That that, that promise of profits down the line isn't quite as enticing as maybe as, as it used to be. You know, we saw not all that long ago. I mean, so many of these businesses that were just trading at 20, 30, and 40 times sales, which you know, it wasn't normal, but it kept on going on for a really long time. So it kind of became normalized, right? It, it, all of a sudden, we became a little bit more immune or just sort of numb to that 20 and 30 times sales multiple. It, it was really out there, though. And so as market conditions have deteriorated, as the cost of capital continues to go up, you, you see the market's appetite for those high flyers has been tempered a little bit. So Zendesk going private now around seven times sales. You start asking yourself, maybe, maybe some of these companies, maybe whether it's private equity or, or these larger acquirers, maybe they see sort of where things are headed. They believe in this digital economy, and, and that ultimately, sort of where we're headed as tech guides more and more of our lives, particularly, you know, on that back end. Uh, so, so maybe they, these, these acquirers see that long-term opportunities. These valuations start to come down. I'm not saying they're cheap by any means, right? I mean, six, seven, eight times sales is still expensive, I think, conventionally speaking. But it starts to become a little bit more palatable if you can really take that longer view, right? If you're looking at this as a decade plus long play, then all of a sudden you start seeing these valuations making a little bit more sense. And you know, we saw recently uh, private equity firm Toma Bravo uh, just acquired Anaplan for for essentially double that multiple just a few months back. So it, it it does feel like we're starting to see some of those high flyers come back to to somewhat palatable valuations. Well, I think it's interesting because maybe some companies went public really b before they should have in in that kind of IPO and SPAC frenzy. I think we saw a lot of younger companies kind of get in the mix before they were really seasoned. Do you think that's some of why we're seeing some of the public companies go private now? Oh, I, I think you're you're absolutely spot on. I mean, it, it's very difficult. I mean, if you're a, you're a company, I mean, particularly kind of exiting that startup mode and really kind of trying to get your feet underneath you, and, and you're in that type of market that we have been witnessing over the last several years. 
It, I'm not saying it's easy money, but you you really do want to go public when you when you have the opportunity to raise as much capital as possible, and the enthusiasm has just been there, right? I mean, enthusiasm bordering on speculation in some cases, perhaps yes, but um, it, it was an opportunity for a lot of these businesses to raise a lot of capital, and I think it's fair to say that that. Uh, a good percentage of them probably weren't necessarily ready uh, to live their lives as publicly traded companies. Uh, perhaps witness the difficulties that come along with that. Um, and when you see an exit strategy that can maybe let the company kind of get back down to doing what they they really want to do, sometimes that's a difficult offer to pass. Yeah. Well, spec and spec are just a letter apart. <laughs> I like that. That's true. <laughs> Well, I'm wondering about other other targets. I think I think the whole market is kind of looking at things. I'm kind of thinking about Peloton. We heard a few months ago there was all that speculation about you know who might get them. Uh, you know, they're Oatly upstart. There's a couple of of ones that are sort of kind of bubbling around as potential acquisition targets. Any that you're thinking about? So it, it, Peloton is one that, golly, it just you kind of wonder what the end game is for them. Um, it, it feels like Peloton is an acquisition waiting to happen. I I feel like it's a better, I feel like it's a better company than the press is probably giving it credit for right now. I mean, it has been kind of kind of raked over the coals a bit, but they make a very good product. So I, I, I do feel like there probably is the opportunity for them to, to become part of a bigger family somewhere. Uh, I, I like that you mentioned Oatly, and the main reason why, I feel like with Oatly, I feel like that's a, that's a company that probably has a bit of a tricky time on its own as a publicly traded company, but you know, there are a lot of food related businesses out there with a lot of brands under their umbrella where this this move towards plant based is is real and it's got a lot of legs and i mean i was just thinking the other day we saw news that kellogg is going to split off into three different businesses here um and while the snacks related business is probably what gets most of my attention just because i'm a snackhead they're also going to have a plant based Company that spins out from this, and and you know, Oatly strikes me as a business that could be a perfect complement to something like that. So, so it's it's been a little bit of a tough time for Oatly as a publicly traded company, but I wouldn't be surprised at all uh, to see some some food companies out there really taking a closer look at this because again, I do think the plant based movement is real. Uh, it's growing. Uh, I think it's just it, it's difficult. It's difficult to 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 make that journey on your own in in that in that food business. Yeah, I think I think that one's interesting too. Uh, of those of the three businesses that Kellogg's is spinning off, the, the plant-based one is is kind of kind of kind of the turkey of the bunch, unfortunately. <laughs> but thinking about fold-in acquisitions and things like that, as as an investor, if you're looking at stocks, does it ever make sense to buy a company just because it might be an acquisition target? Well, I mean, getting back to speculation, I think if you were buying, uh, if you're buying shares of a company because you thought, well, the, the crux of your thesis is acquisition, that's a, that's certainly a bit more speculative. Now, I mean, everybody's got their own sort of way of doing it. I personally would never, I would never use acquisition or potential of acquisition as a thesis, but I, I will say it can be part of the calculus when you're weighing the risk reward, and that's something to keep in mind because ultimately, when we make investments. 
you're really trying to get an idea of what is the risk versus the reward with this investment. And obviously, you want that you want that reward to tilt in your favor as often as possible. And so when you see a business where you feel like, okay, th this is a good business, if they don't execute, then the worst case is maybe the business gets acquired. I could see that as playing into the calculus for the risk reward. I would never make it the crux of my thesis, though. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, we got some news that the this JetBlue Spirit and Frontier deal just this just keeps happening. JetBlue keeps raising their offer. What does this fierce competition mean for shareholders? And and any ideas on how this is all going to play out? It's been kind of fascinating to watch. It is, and it's not. It's not just this market, right? I mean, I think it's, it extends well beyond airlines. Airlines are a bit of a unique market in in that the the regulatory barriers involved, um, in, in in really sort of the limited, quote unquote limited, I guess, competition. I mean, it it is it is a market where scale really matters, right? Size really does matter when it comes to, when it comes to to building an airline, and and that that's all fine and well. I mean, I do appreciate that perspective. I, I think it is it. It's always worth keeping in mind, though, with investors. I mean, you you see times when these valuations get stretched. You see how bad a a company may want another asset, and then you start to see this bidding war. You have to start asking yourselves. I mean, what is a fair value, and and do we get to the point where maybe? They're paying too much, and that that could be a big problem. Um, sometimes it's nice to see the company step back and say, "Hey, you know what? No, we're good. We wanted this, but we don't want it at any cost." And I think you have to keep that in mind because for shareholders, overpaying for these acquisitions. I mean, number one, acquisitions are really hard, right? I mean, in integrating an acquisition into your business, I mean, there there are a lot of risks that come with that: business model risk, culture risks. I mean, all sorts of financial risks. And and you see, for shareholders, this can result in bloated balance sheets, lots of goodwill that eventually needs to be written off. Uh, you start to question management's actual judgment: Does this make sense? And, and you know, one thing that came to mind when we were going through these these uh, questions a little bit earlier, talking about this a little bit earlier, was a good example that comes to mind recently is Teladoc Health. And Teladoc Health is a, is a good example of a business that for a long time, uh, it, part of its strategy was to grow through acquisition. Now it was sort of smaller acquisitions, right? It wasn't doing anything crazy. I mean, it was just buying sort of little small bolt-on acquisitions to expand the comprehensive nature of its offering. And to to you know a certain point, it had executed very well. Uh, you look at BetterHelp, for example, that they acquired, I think, for under ten million dollars. Grew that side of the business up to a seven hundred fifty million plus, uh, seven hundred fifty million dollar plus revenue generator, but then they go and they acquire Lavongo Health for like five hundred billion dollars, right? And of course, that's not how much they paid, but but that's how much it feels like they paid <laughs> because they sure paid. It seems like way too much for something like that. And what we've seen since that acquisition is. The market just has not been on board, and now you're seeing essentially the value of that acquisition has completely been erased from from the Teladoc Health side of the business. You start to ask yourself, okay, well, this this company they had a really good track record up to that point. Is that a one-off, or is that a sign of of poor judgment on management that we may expect to continue? And and we don't know the answer to that yet, but it really just goes back to show that you do like to see management. Maybe draw a line sometimes and say we want this, but we don't want it at any cost because there are real costs to shareholders down the line for for companies that do just uh, vote to pay for pay pay anything for an acquisition. Yeah, I I think this one is is really complicated too because you have more overlap with with JetBlue and Spirit in terms of flights, and you have 
you know, you have maybe more regu regulatory risk. So I think I think it's going to be uh, interesting to watch uh, the next couple of days and see what happens with that one because definitely we're gonna we're gonna see some more news on that. Well, I kind of want to take it to the other end of the money universe, the the private side. There was a report that came out from uh, CB Insights showing that venture capital has just really dropped dramatically, uh, dropped 23% between the first and second quarters of this year, total funding down 27%. I'm watching this at the same time that I'm seeing tech layoffs uh, you know, at, at startups and publicly traded companies. And I'm wondering, what does this mean as this sort of, we see this startups are a great source of uh, innovation. And as this funding starts to dry up, what does that mean for some of those uh, those potential unicorns out there? Well, you, you would think, in theory, this means something slows down, right? Or at least there's a lull in, in some of this investment. But, I mean, to steal a line from Jurassic Park, tech finds a way. <laughs> and and <laughs> to steal another line from Arrested Development, there's always money in the banana stand, Deidre. Uh, there, <laughs> there is always a lot of capital out there to put to work. So, I think that what we likely see from this is less waste and more focus, right? Doubling down on the things that work and, and maybe putting some of those moonshots on hold. It's not to say that we, we don't see investment uh, in, in some of those longer-term uh, moonshotty kind of ideas, but maybe you put those on hold for a little bit and, re and really focus on on the things that are working. But I mean, you know, we we've seen. I mean, this it's been a material slowdown for sure. I mean, for the first quarter of 2022, the global IPO market saw uh, 321 deals that raised uh, just over 54 billion dollars in proceeds. Those that's those numbers are down. 37% and 51% year over year, respectively. And so, I mean, it is real that that, that inflow of capital has slowed down, and, and that definitely plays a role in, in these, these businesses kind of weighing where they need to allocate that capital because it becomes a little bit more difficult to come by. Yeah, absolutely. And in, in the report from CB Insights, it also mentioned that Series D. Uh, Funding rounds are, are are far down, so that makes me wonder if more of those companies that are that are more mature might might IPO or maybe even SPAC to try to try to raise capital instead. It's certainly possible. I mean, going public opens a lot of doors to raise money. That is one of the benefits of being a publicly traded company. You just have a lot of ways that you can raise capital, and so I'm sure that's something they're uh, we're thinking long and hard about. All right. Well, thanks so much for your time today, Jason. This was fantastic. Hey, thanks, Deidre. Next up, Allison Southwick and Robert Brokamp continue their conversation on past market declines with Morgan Housel. And in this part of the series, they're going to talk about what was my first scary experience in investing, the dot-com bubble. All right, so let's get into it. So. For me, the dot-com bubble, I was kind of around, I was kind of alive, not an investor. So, from my outsider perspective, it seems like this perfect storm of exuberance over this new thing, the internet, and not quite understanding it, and these companies coming in, and it's we know it's big, we don't know exactly why. But then also, there's 
investing becomes investing in these companies also becomes a lot easier. So that's my quick take. But you're going to give us the longer take. No, I think I think that's exactly it. And those two points coming together at the same time is really what made it crazy. Versus other times in history when there was a new industry that was coming along that was going to change the future. One the one in the 1960s was plastics, which is almost funny to say. (laughs) That was in the 1960s. Plastic was like this was this is going to change the world. The companies that were making plastic were like the big innovative companies that had huge growth in front of them. But plastics didn't change how anyone invested at all. So you had a lot of excitement, you had overvaluation. But with the internet, it was, hey, not only is this going to change the world, but now you can invest way, way easier and faster and cheaper, and you're just bombarded with more information than ever before. So you put those two together, and I think that's kind of the backbone of what led everything to get out of control so quickly. And the other thing that's you know about this period is that when people talk about the dot com boom. They talk about a kind of late nineties. This is kind of how they say it. Or sometimes they just say the nineteen nineties. It was really only like a twelve or eighteen month period in nineteen ninety eight and nineteen ninety nine that it started getting that it got really out of hand. It, like it really happened pretty quickly. And for most of the nineties, even when this was going on, there was growth and the stock market was doing well. But it was all it was. So it was it was it was mostly rational and made a lot of sense from what was going on, and it was just kind of like this blow off top right at the end where things started getting really crazy, and uh, and and a lot of that craziness was really only captured in a small number of companies in that in that period at the end where you know the stock market in general, or if you take a look at the stock market, most individual companies. Peaked in 1997, 1998, and it was the gains that the market, uh, you know, experienced in 1999 when things were really getting crazy and the market was going up 30, 40, 50 percent, was driven by like five companies, like AOL, Walmart, GE, uh, just a few big tech companies: Cisco, Microsoft, Yahoo. You know, that's where all of like the overvaluation was. But a lot of the hype ended way before that. So there's there's a lot of nuance in what happened that I think gets missed, and that when we just lump everything into, oh, the '90s were a big irrational, you know, crazy time to invest. I think that's directionally true, but there's a lot that went on in between that that, that kind of takes the story in different directions. When did things start warming up with the internet? So it's like the internet, it's a thing. When was that? I think you have to take it back to personal computers, which was the 70s and 80s, and even then, that's when you know Microsoft and IBM really started getting getting into the game, particularly like the mid and early 80s. But even then, it was still seen as like a, a, a something that a tech hobbyist would have in their house. It wasn't really. You had people like Bill Gates, who were the visionary, saying this is going to be on everyone's desktop, but very few people outside of you know the you know, Bill Gates and kind of his core cohort, Radio Shack customers. Exactly. <laughs> Those people really, really started believing it until the early '90s, which is kind of when Windows, as we know it, kind of took off, and the the user the the interface of personal computers really started making sense for people who had no tech background whatsoever. Oh yeah, the mouse, the mouse, exactly. Clicking not, on not, things, not just the mouse. They had the mouse for like a decade before that, but. Previous versions of personal computers, like MS DOS, like you, you really had to know what you were doing to get any usefulness out of it. Yeah. And it was really kind of the first version of Windows when it made sense. Like, oh, you have you have folders, and you click on the folders, and you have stuff in there. Like, it, so that was like early '90s when it really started taking off. That average individual people could get something useful out of this. 
And then in terms of when the internet started, really the, the, the first event that gets cited a lot as kind of the birth of the dot-com bubble, when people really started opening it up to not just the internet's potential, but the investment potential, was when Netscape went public, which was, I think, 1994. And its, it's shares doubled on the first day that it went IPO, wow. that, that it went public. And that was kind of the first signal, the first... Uh, you know, the first example of what was to come, and the you know n- not just in terms of how this was going to change people's lives, but how it was going to change how people invested as well. Yeah, spoiler: our young kids listening to the podcast have no idea what Netscape even is. No, so no. <laughs> it was the one that started it all. That was a big deal because before that, you had the internet, but it was again, it was something that you needed to be a, a, a tech genius to use, and the browser was the first one that brought it to average everyday people in a form that they could use. Yeah, I I always used Ask Jeeves. Oh, I did too. That was. Yeah, Ask Jeeves was a good one yeah. too, and then Google came along, and all those other ones too. I remember I was a teacher actually when the internet first started taking off. I think I've, I got my first email address in 1994, and I still have that same email address. You do not? I do. Really? And for me, like being a teacher, like that just opened up your world. Being able to show kids different things, to be able to pull up a video. YouTube wasn't around at that point, but you could still get videos. Um, it was just mind blowing. And then from there, I went to um, the financial services industry, and I and I started becoming a broker in 1997. And one of the first jobs you have to do there is cold call people. And every time I would call cold call people, they'd say, "I don't need you." I'm doing better all on my own, which is not something you could say even in the late '80s, because you needed a broker to buy a stock. But that was that gets back to how things just changed so much that you didn't need a financial advisor. I think also looking back on that too, people were doing well because they were concentrated in tech stocks. Once the downturn came, they probably didn't do so well. And what so so many people did when they could start investing on their own was not investing on their own, but day trading on their own. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the first iteration of hey, I can I don't need a stockbroker. I can do this by myself. I don't have to ask anyone's permission. What am I going to do? These were not buy and hold investors. Yeah. This is the whole concept of day trading was kind of born in the 1990s when here's your E Trade account or. TD Ameritrade, Daytech, that was one of the big ones in the right, 90s. Yeah, yeah. Here's your Daytech account. What are you going to do? You're just going to trade stocks all day. And because there was so much momentum in tech stocks that were just going up day after day after day, that just made the concept of day trading that much more enticing. Not only had the opportunity to day trade, but hey, maybe you could double your money in a day or a week. Yeah. Right. So that just drew in all kinds of people who had no idea what they were doing or no business doing then. Earlier this year, the Bespoke Investment Group published a, a table of the composition of the sectors, the S&P 500. Over various increments. So you look back at 1990, tech stocks made up 6.3% of the S&P 500. By 1995, it was 9.3, so growing. By 1999, it was 29% of the S&P 500. And they have all the sectors going back to 1990 up until 2017. And at no point do you see any other sector making up that much of the S&P 500. And so much of the gain in that way, back to what we were saying earlier, was really just a handful of companies: Yahoo, Cisco, AOL, Lucent. Lucent. There's a few companies that were worth hundreds of billions of dollars, yeah. and that, that were really driving the driving the bulk of that. All right, so the internet—it's going to be the next big thing. Everyone's investing in it. At the same time, the Motley Fool is getting swept right. up in this. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're going through it right along with everyone else. We've talked about this in previous episodes. I joined in '99 at the Motley Fool. When we had uh, when we were at I don't know 150 employees. At one point, we were over four. Hundred, yeah, and then things changed. Uh, by the time at the bottom, where we were, Rick, like seventy people or so, something like that. Yeah, and I'll say, living through that, one thing that is a part of this in terms of the stock market and how bad it got. Part of it was the September 11th attacks happened in 2001. 
and where you you, you, you could look at some things. For, for example, 2001, small cap stocks actually did pretty well. It was the tech stops that, stocks that were suffering, but you could look elsewhere in the stock market and find good returns. But then September 11th came, and I think that changed a lot. I remember being in the company and, and David Gardner saying, there's some things you can't predict when you're running a business, and one of them is terrorist attacks. Wow. By law, are we also required to talk about the AOL Time Warner deal? <laughs> As we sit here in the Time Life building? It is! We are in the Time Life building, which is crazy! That That's is. true. Yeah. That feels like such an iconic moment of the dot-com bubble, too. Yeah. Right. Well, in um, 1999, AOL was the 10th biggest publicly traded company in the country. And we all had their floppy disks and CD-ROMs. You've got we mail. All, you've got mail. It was a movie starring Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. I mean, come on! <laughs> they peaked. They peaked right there, quite literally. So, what made the bubble burst? In addition to September 11, that's one of the big things too. We we're talking about the crash of '87 and even the crash of 1929, where there's not one specific event that you can pinpoint in the newspaper on the day the stock market peaked and said this is what caused it. It's just things kind of get out of control, and I think when enough when enough people start to question what they're doing and enough people start whispering to their coworkers and their cousins and their neighbors like, "Hey, this is this is starting to get pretty crazy." I think those moods can shift pretty quickly, and and then it just snowballs just as fast in reverse as it did on the way up. So you don't need that much momentum on the way down before enough people throw in throw in the towel. And then just as you know, momentum, you know, just as buying begets more buying on the way up, selling does the same thing on the way down. So stocks peaked in March of 2000, and a lot of people have gone back and said, why March 2000? What happened at this time? There's really not any specific event that really triggered it beyond just people's moods and attitudes changing. And it wasn't until you know. 18 or some odd months later, that 9/11 hit. That's a specific event, obviously, that took the economy and the stock market down a whole nother level. But before that, it was it was it was really just kind of a big change in moods. You know, there were some events of companies that were going to go public and their IPO was canceled because there wasn't enough demand. But that in itself is kind of triggered by the same uh, change in investor moods. Just people start giving up at some point. Mm-hmm. What did we learn from the dot com bubble? I, I think a lot of it. If, if if you look at other new industries that really changed the world, one I think of is is the birth of the car industry in the early 1900s. There were hundreds, if not a thousand, car makers, car manufacturers in the early 1900s, and three of them survived: mm-hmm. Ford, Chrysler, and GM. And I think the same thing happened with the internet, where you had thousands of people try their hand at this new technology that clearly was going to change the world, and a very small handful of them survived. You talk about Ask Jeeves earlier; that was one of the big thing. That was one of the Big search engines, and then there was there was Alta Vista and all these other new search engines. Dozens of people that could see the opportunity and said, "I'm going to try my hand at it." But in the end, it was pretty much Google that won. You had one company that won it in the end. And there's always that that big just like culling of the herd that happens whenever you have a new industry. If thousands of people trying and only a few will make it, and because of that. In hindsight, you're going to have all these horror stories from the 99.9% of companies that didn't make it, and then you have investors that had that lost a ton of money on those, and that scars them for a whole nother generation. But the but the car industry itself changed the world and you know changed how we live, and the internet did the same thing. Even if along the way it burned not just a few people, but most, if not almost everyone who partook in it. So that's that, that's kind of the risk of new industries is that even when you can identify like this. Industry is going to change how we live. Identifying the specific 
company, I don't want to say needle in the haystack, but close to it, that's going to be the survivor, is incredibly difficult to do. And if you are going to play that game, I think preparing yourself that the success rate of these companies that are going to not only survive but thrive for decades after it is in the single digit percentage, uh, you know, in, in, in terms of, of success rates. David Gardner is one who is not only good at identifying companies that are going to do well, but more importantly, I think he has the disposition to deal with the loss rate that comes along with identifying new industries. Mm-hmm. And, and he would be, uh, it, it's not that he's happy about it, but I think he has a disposition to be okay if half the companies in his portfolio do extremely poorly knowing that one or two are going to do really well and drive that portion of his portfolio. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. 